goodness. We have declared in song, Lord, what you, through the psalmist, put before us to exalt your name together and that those who look to you are radiant. Lord, we want to humble ourselves before you, thanking you for your grace, for your goodness, for your mercy, but also, Lord, for your holiness, your justice, that you are almighty and you are sovereign. And Lord, we, uh, we humble ourselves before you because what's going on in our world around us over in the Middle East it's confusing. There is death. There is violence. There is injustice. It's confusing. It's full of hostility and hurt. And so we, we appeal to you, Lord, in your sovereign majesty, that all things being in your, under your complete control, that nothing that you plan, Lord, can be thwarted. We praise you for that. And we can't make sense of that. So we humble ourselves before you saying, just like you can hold all those character qualities in perfect and beautiful tension of justice and mercy, of greatness and goodness, of holiness, and yet you sympathize with us, Lord Jesus. We pray that you might hold in beautiful tension answers to our prayers we don't even know how to articulate about what's going on over there, what's going on in other pockets of our world. But Lord, we desire to be those who continually look to you and as your people set apart both here, but also your church over there, Lord, would be radiant in the midst of darkness and death and suffering. May the suffering servant Jesus be on display through our lives, being humbled before you, being available to you, our eyes being open to the hurt around us here, and our voices being lifted in prayer to you there. And Lord, so we, we weep at those who weep in that horrific situation. But Lord, we also rejoice with those who rejoice here. Tyler and Madison, I don't know. They hadn't given birth when I talked to them very early this morning, but they're supposed to be giving birth to little baby Kate today. So we celebrate with them. We pray for safe and healthy delivery for mom and for baby. Lord, we also thank you, Lord, that you're the God who goes with us. You sovereignly locate us. And for the Trevathans, our, our family, Lord, who were here for so many years and then went over to Austria and now are transitioning back here, which was unexpected. And there's so much that just doesn't make sense. And there's a lot of hurt. And there's a lot of anguish. And there's just a lot of day-to-day that just is weighing on them. And so we, we lament with them, but we also hope with them that, that they might see your purposes in the transition back that they didn't expect. We pray your provision. Thank you that we as a church can provide um, some resource for them as they transition back. Thank you, Lord, that we can pray for them. What a privilege that is. We can do that because Jesus has given us access to you. There is no barrier. You invite us in to pour out our hearts before you because you're our refuge, you're our father. You're the God who hears. You're the God who answers. Answer, Lord, in ways that we don't know how to imagine or, or conjure in our minds. So that through your answers, through your beautiful Son, and through us, your responsive church, Lord, that you would be glorified. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. I want to welcome you to Allen Bible Church. We're glad you're here to worship with us. Uh, even as we prayed, not only over in the Middle East, but in our own worlds, we're all coming from various places, and so we're thankful that God is unchanging, and unchanging doesn't mean distant and detached. He's very much knowing right where you are today, so we don't think it's an accident. Any of us is here to worship, 
Uh, if you're a visitor with us, I want to extend a special welcome to you. There's a simple guest connect card in the seat back in front of you. You could fill that out. You could drop it in the box, or you can also go um, to our welcome desk afterward, and one of our welcome team would be glad to meet you. They even have a small gift for you. If you, uh, if you hand, hand over that info, they'll give you a small gift. This is a way of saying thanks for visiting with us. Um, if you are newer uh, to Allen Bible and you're thinking, hey, I want to know more about this place or maybe even considering calling this place home, in a couple of weeks, a couple of Sundays, we have our next discovery class on October 29th. They'll be here at 9. We do need to know if you're thinking about coming, so you can go online and sign up for that. That helps us get materials ready. And if there's a child care need, um, we can uh, try to arrange for that for you. So please let us know of that. Also remind one another to give as part of your worship. You can do that in that box. You can do a text to give if you're savvy, give online, or you can old school send a check through the mail, and it will get to our office, and that info is right there. Um, one announcement, because it's next week, there are so many other things going on. You can get our email, sign up for that, so you can get those other things. But next Sunday afternoon, uh, we'll have our church picnic at the Taylor's Acreage in Fairview. There'll be hay rides, snow cones. We're trying to have a chili cook-off. We need uh, several entries. I think some of you have started to uh, sign up. I would love to personally taste all of your chilies, so please uh, register there. We'll also have hot dogs and a few other things uh, to go with that, but you can sign up for that as well as we need, if we can spread the load, many hands make work light for everyone. We'd love for the picnic to be enjoyable for everybody, so as many as you, you would be like, hey, I could help you know, direct people for parking, I could help with face painting. I could help watch kids for 15, 30 minutes. I don't know what the slots are. For bounce house, you know, that kind of thing. So everybody does a little so that we all get to enjoy the day. Um, we go to our uh, website there, and then that'll send you to a link to sign up uh, to make it a great day. It's always fun, um, that hayride and, and uh, even pickleball, I think. It might get competitive since we've had some pickleballers lately around here. Um, but I hope that you'll make plans to join us next Sunday at 4.30 after worship. At this time, I'm going to dismiss our first uh, through fourth graders. You guys can head out the double doors. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to have us stand back up for the worship team after I see them get to the doors. Let them make their way. You guys have a great time. All right. So if you would stand, um, we have, currently we have five core values. We do wrestle with, are we going to add some or texturize our core values? Not that they would change necessarily, but to say, are we discovering that, that God's given us a heart for this or that? But one of our core values for years uh, has been Christ-centered worship. And so we're going to read this together. We'll start with We Treasure, then that header there, and then we'll read the little paragraph. And this is just a simple reminder of, this is part of our DNA. This is, you know, if you want to know what, what do we value, what are, what's our heart uh, palpitate over, and where do we want to direct our attention, it's to making sure that what I bring on a Sunday morning is Christ-centered, that it actually is worship, declaring his worth. That's what worship means. But also as we plan things, as you come on a Sunday morning, or as you gather in your house with your family, or as you have personal time with the Lord, what does that look like? For worship to be a way of life, okay? So we're going to read this, then I'm going to get off the stage, and they're going to lead us in some old school mashup. He, he told me he's going to do a mashup. I was like, that speaks my love language. That means it just seamlessly continues, song, song, song. So we're going to do some older ones, so hopefully the familiarity actually will help you relax on the words and your heart to enter into worship. So let's say this together. Start with We Treasure. We Treasure, Christ-centered worship that is authentic, joyful, and a way of life. Our whole life response to him when we gather and scatter declares his supreme worth in our lives above all other relationships.
feels anything similar to what I felt in, in just past years. I know sometimes that you 
being better can get polluted, that there's lots of things that can happen in life that make me think that other things are better, that it's worth it to lay my crowns down and to worship something completely different. And so I just ask that maybe today that if there's anybody in this room where that they do have a polluted view of what it's like to know that you're better, that God, you would just be patient maybe just just help us see through the teaching and through music and just through being around your people today that you truly are better and that it is truly worth it to lay our crowns down at your feet and not at the feet of anything else God and God just thank you for being better sometimes I think we can easily forget just to say thank you for being a God who truly is better not a God who is just trying to to punish us all the time or just is trying to disconnect from us God but that you truly have chased after us to love us and to know us and that you are truly better God in your name we pray amen team. <laughs> Let's pray again. Lord, as we prayed last week, that you would establish your word to us, that you would turn our eyes away from looking at empty things. You would establish your word to us, your servants and your sons and daughters, as that which produces reverence for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what was going through your mind as you made your way here to worship with us? today. I ask that question because our approach and our attitude as we gather will determine whether God receives from us weariship or worship. That's what we're calling this series, weariship. Going through the prophet Malachi, which is very rarely gone through. <laughs> you, you, you should know that. Um, But we've called it weariship because actually multiple times in the book, either the people or even God himself says, you know, this is kind of tiresome. This is wearying. Or even God says, oh, yeah, well, it wears me out, too. And so the attitude, the, the mindset, the approach that you and I come when we come to gather here, it can determine a lot in terms of what God will receive from you today. Will it be worship, which is declaring his worth? Or will it be weariship, something that is more half-hearted, feels justified in the moment, as Ali even prayed? Well, maybe, God, I don't know if I've seen you at work lately. So maybe I'll kind of hold back a bit. And what we don't realize is that that doesn't do much to God in terms of it doesn't take him down a notch. It just simply wearies us because we then are putting ourselves or something else in the place of God, and we can't bear that weight. In fact, that's what we'll go in the passage today. It's another weighty passage. I mean, it will feel heavy, okay? But it's actually about heaviness. When he uses the word, honor my name, he's saying, give it weight, He's saying, give me weight. Give me the most weight in your life. And then all other things find their, if you will, their counterweight with me. And so how we came in this morning, your approach, your attitude, can determine a lot of what God will receive. Wholehearted, attentive worship is what he's seeking. John, uh, through John, Jesus tells the woman at the well, God, what he's seeking is those who'd worship him in spirit and in truth. That means the full you showed up, and you're not declaring who he is of your own imagination, but like we've done in singing, rehearsing who he's revealed himself to be in his word. 
So wholehearted, attentive worship is what he's looking for, and yet wearyship is often what he finds. That's not to guilt you if you came in here with a sour attitude. That's actually to say it's God's invitation. Let me take that weight off of you, and, and how about put some weight again on who I am. And so what we offer the Lord of hosts is often shaped by our approach and attitude, and those get, that gets shaped by questions that we may be asking ourselves as we gather. So uh, all of you here, all of us here are congregants. That means we got together. Or you could call the shower-uppers. What questions do shower-uppers often ask as they come to worship? And usually it's, what am I getting out of this? What am I going to get out of this? That's not a completely bad question. But notice who's central in the question. And then leaders. uh, You know, we talked a little bit about what we were planning for today. Leaders who plan our worship gatherings. We may ask, well, what's working? You know, when we, when we do this 1030 to whenever Buddy can get himself finished, you know, hour-ish thing, what, like, what's working? How can we give the people what they want so they keep coming back? But how rare is the question, what will God get from me this morning? How rare is the question, what worthy offering will I bring to honor his name? The questions you and I ask as we plan or show up and participate in worship together determine whether God finds our worship worthless or of equal weight worthy of his name. So what would he say to you and me? Will he find our worship today acceptable? Good question. We might be shocked at his answer. Uh, We're going to start today with the shocked question from the folks in Malachi's day. If you want to turn in your own copy of God's word, Malachi 2 is where we'll be. We'll cover all but one verse in Malachi 2. But the folks in Malachi's day, they had a shocked question that came out of them, or at least Malachi voices what's probably stirring within them when they hear that God calls their worship worthless and wearying. Malachi 2 We'll begin with these shocking words from the Lord in verse 13 through the very first sentence of uh, 2.14. It'll be on the screen. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears. The altar would have been where they went to worship. They would have brought an animal to sacrifice to declare God's worth through giving up something that cost them something. It says, This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? For what reason? They're weeping. They're groaning. Not the way we may do sometimes when something is grieving us, and we would encourage this here if, Show up as you are. If you're in a tough place, the Lord knows that. And pour out your heart to him. And let the tears flow. If you're rejoicing, let those tears flow. But these are tears of going, wait a second. We thought we threw you a bone, and you're not coming through. Now, that's what was really going on. But they're like, hey, we brought our worship. What For what reason? Or... Uh, you can put the next slide up in bigger letters. Why do you not accept our worship? Now, first of all, I want you to notice that there, the Bible is letting us know there is worship when we gather, or like we said in the, the slide we read, when you scatter personally. There is worship which is unacceptable, and there's worship that's acceptable. Okay? It doesn't mean... If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, that, well, your acceptance with him in terms of relationship is in jeopardy. No, he's saying there is worship even from me or you belonging to him that can be unacceptable in that moment or can be acceptable. And they say this is the third dispute. If you haven't been with us, Malachi 
whether they actually said these things or not, or Malachi's voicing the inner complaints, um, the, the suspicions of God, of, of his people, who are like, wait a second, where are you? The economy's down, crops are not coming through. Where are you? This covenant-keeping God who said, you know, I'm going to give you this land. And they've been actually in exile for a while, and they've been brought back, and they got the temple rebuilt, and they've been worshiping. But then they started to neglect worship, and they started to kind of treat it as, you know, take it or leave it. And if I don't have anything else better to do, I'll get around to it. And so God says, well, let me... Let me curb a few things. In his fatherly love, I'm not making, uh, this is true. In his fatherly love, he disciplines his people. And that discipline meant a little bit of hardship, meant a little bit of, hmm, the, the account's kind of draining. And hope of God bringing his Messiah seems to be dwindling. And when hope is diminishing, then it self-rule and self-indulgence become very appealing, even um, responses that we feel justified in having. They say, well, we're going to hold back a little and indulge a little because we're not sure we're getting from you what we want. So they're, they're having this wrestling match, and God is saying, what you're offering me is profaning my name. It is profaning my sanctuary, my holy place where these would have been offered. You're profaning my covenant with you. To profane, because I'll say this again, but I want to make sure I say it now. Instead of thinking profanity, whatever your favorite curse word is, profane means to make common, to make ordinary, to strip of significance. God's saying, you're going through the motions worship. The reason why I'm saying it's not acceptable is because you stripped it down of meaning. You have vacuumed out, if you will, your personal showing up, the cost and sacrifice to show that you're devoted to me and my worth to you, and so, therefore, it is not acceptable. But let's see, in chapter 2, he's already been saying this, He's been saying it, particularly hammering the priests who are supposed to represent God to the people and represent the people to God and to instruct God's people and what the worship of God um, would be fitting and then instruction on how to live a life of worship as his people. That's, he's already begun that, hammering the priests. Well, he continues to hammer the priests in the beginning here. But what is it that he finds unacceptable? As we go through, we're going to see two attitudes and actions in chapter 2 of unacceptable worship. And I want you to see if you can spot them. This is a long passage. It'll be verses 1 to 16. I'm not going to make you stand because I don't want you to faint. It's long. Okay? Be heavied by it. Um, this, this is a heavy passage. Be heavied by it. Malachi 2, beginning in verse 1. And again, he's addressing the priest. He says, And now this commandment is for you, O priest. If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and uprightness, excuse me, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, he's still talking to the priest, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people. 
just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. And now he's going to go broader. He is talking to the people as he's addressing the priest, but now he's going to go broader to all the people. Verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously? Some of yours uh, say act um, faithlessly. Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done, has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong or violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Whew. <laughs> Welcome to church. So, the two attitudes or actions that are unacceptable, that God says, here's why I'm not accepting your offerings. Those two attitudes of unacceptable worship are partially, they're being partially reverent, and they're being partially obedient. Partially reverent and partially obedient. Reverent, or some of your translations say fear, there's sort of a half-hearted reverence. Um, there's sort of a, not sort of, there is a, I'm not all here. I'm not all in. I'm withholding from you. And the I, I, only way I can do that is if I take a step or two away from who you really are so that I don't have to quite fear and tremble. I can make you manageable God, so therefore then I can worship you this way. I can hold back a part of myself. They're being partially reverent. They're not revering his name. They're not giving full weight to his name. And they're being partially obedient, which is in 10 through 16, that they are not following all of his ways, that they are profaning God's law, that they are stepping outside of his design boundaries for flourishing in relationships with one another and particularly in the marriage relationship which is a covenant God established and he established it for certain purposes okay. now I want to say this from the get go some of us because of wherever you are in your own journey you may not be able to mentally move away from those words they are very heavy words um, what I hope to do is not go, eh, he doesn't mean that. I'm not going to say that. What I am going to say is God knows exactly where you are, and he's, he is the God of all grace, and he can meet you in that which perhaps for you is a, a great source of pain. Uh, for, for some of us, it may be uh, a, a source of shame that you walk around with baggage and shame always. And so what I want to do is not just traverse through this and be flippant about it. And, and yet what I do hope to do through this, as heavy of a passage as this is, to not water down anything and yet to say, actually within it, there's a God who's more gracious and compassionate and merciful and still almighty and holy and deserving of our entire lives that, that I hope that we'll see by the time we get through it. We're going to try to traffic our way through it, okay, without being too heavy, because we've already read the heavy. And yet, I want you to hear, we're not making light of who God is or what he's put before us, okay? I'm trying to, trying to say that. But what I want you to actually see in the midst of this 
is there's a beauty and a fullness of life that God invites us to if we would listen, if we would take heed to our spirit, and if we would take it to heart what God's putting before his people then and what he's saying to us now. So hang in there. Open your heart and your ears, not to me, but to God. So those are the two attitudes of unacceptable worship that are not only there, present there, but they're very possible this morning for me to be partially reverent and particularly for me to be partially obedient, to be a picker and chooser of what I'll allow God to have say in. Well, before we look at Malachi 2, I just want to mention a few other uh, examples in the scriptures of uh, unacceptable worship. First of all, you have Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, um, we're, don't worry, we're not going to go through these very thickly at all. But Cain and Abel, right? The, you have Cain brought, um, basically it's described as what he brought was just ordinary. Cain's a bit flippant about it. And Abel brings his best. Notice this, this is pre-law. There was no God saying, now you need to do this or that. But already there's something that God ingrained in us being made in his image and that he's God and that we are not. We are his creation, he's creator. That he is worthy of our respect, our honor, our best. In fact, I want to say this here because I, I, I didn't write it down. I meant to write it down. I, but, but think about this as you think, gosh, God sure does sound demanding. Or how could he say that? I mean, I thought he's supposed to be the God of love and grace and kindness and, and all this. I mean, how could he even find anything unacceptable? Well, I would say this. Any God who doesn't require of you or me our best is not a God worthy of worship. He's not God. The only way he's worthy of worship is if he is God. And if he is our creator God making us in his image... And then if he's our redeemer, God, who redeemed us, not because we were lovely or you had your life together, but because he sees you having trusted his son, Jesus Christ, and now you are his, because of being our creator and our redeemer and all that he is, he is worthy of our best. But Cain was detached. He was flipping about it. And then we know that he went ahead and... <laughs> bloodied up things really bad. Another one, Leviticus 10, uh, when there's the kindling of strange fire from the sons of Aaron, um, the first you know, priest, and there are folks killed in that scene. And then Ananias and Sapphira, this is the day when everybody woke up from their sermon nap at church because when they went up to forward to give an offering, it looked very generous. Next thing they know, Ananias and Sapphira are dead. Why? Because they lied to the Holy Spirit. They were flippant. They thought they'd offer something that looked as if they were fully generous. And it wasn't the amount. It was the heart held back. It was the deceit and the pretense. And he says, I won't be trifled with. And particularly, um, this isn't God being, you know, like, I'll zap you. This is God going, my church is an infant church. And right now what we need is, is, a, is a purity within the church, uh, a, 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 just like we do with our infants. Like Tyler and Madison, when they get little Kate home, they're going to nourish that baby and nurture that baby, protect that baby and put weird stuff on the coffee table so she doesn't bust her. Like, you take care of it. And God was taking care of his church. That's why Ananias and Sapphira. That's the Greek word. Um, another example of unacceptable worship. In Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns about us being careful not to parade around our righteousness so as to be seen and applauded by men. But then he takes his boys, his disciples, and he says, hey, let's go over here and sit for a while and watch. And as they watched, he said, you see that? And they didn't see it. They didn't hear it. Because when people gave offerings back then, they'd throw the coins into the big kettles and make a lot of noise. And there was a widow with her two mites. A mite, such a little speck of a coin meant nothing. It was, it was again, <laughs> and she threw it in and he said, did you see that? It's beautiful. She gave out of her pot. She gave it all. He says, now that is worship. But the Pharisees gave a lot. And he said, and yet they, they weren't in it. They did it for a different reason. And then lastly, a Pharisee and a sinner praying. It's a parable. But Jesus tells a parable of a Pharisee and a sinner going up to worship. 
and they're praying, and the Pharisee prays, God, thank you that I'm not like this sinner next to me. Can you imagine if we said, hey, we want to have a time of prayer today, and y'all come up and pray. Can you imagine the person next to you, thank you, God, that I'm not like Buddy. Wow. And, and so we see in that that the sinner then beat his chest and just said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it says only one of them went home that day accepted. So those are some examples of worship that's unacceptable. What I want you to see in it is that the heart was far from God in those situations. That they didn't give their best. They weren't fully present. Or, like the, the widow with the two mites, she gave in full trust, in full devotion, saying, you are worthy of my trust. And so the, what he tells in uh, verses 1 to 9 is take it to heart. This is the next slide here. Take it to heart. Verses 1 to 9. Uh, one more. He's, he's talking to the priest. He'd already been talking to the priest. And he says, I want you to take it to heart. What are they to take to heart? That you're not giving honor to my name. Again, honor is heaviness, weightiness, glory. By the, by the way you are worshiping, it's not obvious that I am the heavy priority of your life. I'm not the ultimate to you. And so take it to heart. He says it twice. Take it to heart. When we are partially reverent, if that's where you are today, don't hear God, you know, pulling out his gun. Hear him saying, take it to heart. In this passage, he's calling them on the carpet, yes. But you only call someone on the carpet if you really are a God who's worthy of it. And then if you're a God who's not desperate for it, he's saying the very foundational design of who I made you to be is in relationship with you, um, me and you. And for you to, to experience the satisfaction of my glory and to worship me. And so he's saying, take it to heart. This is a chance to take stock of, is your heart in it or not? And don't feel shame and guilt and all of that. Feel conviction, but feel invitation that there's still time for you to take it to heart and reverse course and lay your life before me. If you have nothing else to lay, and as you lay your life before me, open your hands, meaning whatever it is, Lord, whatever way I can honor you in this area of my work, uh, in, in my marriage, which we'll talk about in a little bit, in, in my friendships, and how I... Um, you know, our wallets tell us a lot about what we worship. Your Amazon history tells you a lot about what you worship. That is just the way that it is. We don't just worship singing songs. Singing songs is honestly a way to tune our hearts to worship. And sometimes we can get there. I would tell you this, I've said it before in this series already, but um, the whole point of Malachi is to not, you know, sit around and wait till you feel really authentically ready to worship and then show up. You won't ever do it. Sometimes the best thing for me is to be standing there and singing with you and hear y'all singing when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And then talking about it demands my soul, my life, my all. And I'm singing it, and it's echoing because I know that I haven't given you my soul and my all this week. But because I hear you and some of you are in a place where you have been giving the Lord the honor due his name, God can bring about even a restoration in my own heart. That's why it's so important to show up here in person next to each other, even if they sing off key. If they're really bad, you can move over here. Our family sings on key. I don't know why I said that. Um, <laughs> But, but he's, what he's after is what is your life was most made for. What matters most to God is he matters most to you, us. And as, as Piper is so famous for saying, you know, God is most glorified in us and we're most satisfied in him. That satisfaction shows up in expression. Expression of time, expression of finances, expression of serving others, expression of obeying. He says, you need to revere me. But beware, you've been reducing me. And he gets real graphic. 
It's one of two places in Scripture I know where, where dung or feces, I'm sorry that doesn't sound very pleasant to talk about, but he, that's what he says twice. I'm going to smear it on your face. That would, those would have been taken outside as the animal was going to be sacrificed. That, the innards would have been taken outside and burned. And he's saying basically because you guys are falling down on the job and you're corrupting the covenant and you're corrupting worship as my leaders of worship, it's better if you just got displaced. Uh, it's garbage, basically. Why does he say that? Well, he says, because what I was after in verses 5 through 7, what I was after is those who would worship. First of all, you would show the example and worship yourselves, not yourselves, but worship me, embodying worship, that's what I'm trying to say, and instruct the people in that. But first you instruct them by how you worship and your own posture and your own insistence, as he talked about last week. You can't bring this lame animal you can't bring this thing that is worthless. You've got to bring something costly because my name will be great in all the nations and it will be great at great cost to those who would declare my worth through worship. And he's saying, that's not where you guys have been. Uh, verses 5 through 7, he says, you know, this is the covenant I made. Now, you may be like, I don't know the you know, the covenant with Levi, where is that? Well, it doesn't really say it as explicitly, and really it's kind of a, um, a, an attachment to the Mosaic covenant. Because in order to live out the Mosaic covenant, which is a lot of stuff you're like, oh man, Bible reading plan, I hit Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? It's a lot of stuff, even talking about Malachi, sacrificing animals and do it this way, but don't do it that way and do it on this side of the altar. Like we could just get worn out, right? But they were to do that and to be those who would... Um, help prepare the people for that, instruct them in it. Um, they were to serve and attend the house of the Lord so that his worship would be continual. But here's what I want you to not get lost in. Notice there's a phrase in there. I want my covenant with Levi to continue. What he's saying is, all a priest is, is someone who represents God to his people and represents his people to God. Uh, mediates, if you will, instructs the people uh, sometimes says, hey, God, could you, could you uh, give him a little mercy here? Like there's a go-between kind of, of aspect. But notice what he's after. He said that covenant, we read it, Leviticus and stuff, and we go, man, oh, man, is God just strict and tight and this and that. Guess what this whole thing was about? Life and peace. Life and peace. And peace there is shalom. And it doesn't, yes, it does mean We'd like to see less hostility between others, but particularly it means wholeness, flourishing, that the life that God always intended for you and for me made in his image is that we would honor and glorify him and we would do so as we flourish in the ways he designed us to, individually how he made you and wired you, we talk about around here, and how we relate to one another in our marriages and so that the spillover would be others going, I want that God. I don't know what's going on in your life, but you and I both got laid off at the same time. And yeah, it's hitting you, but you're not completely capsized. What is it? Where does that come from? He's saying, that's what I designed my people to be, to be unified and to be unique. And you as the leaders have been setting them astray. He says in verses 8 and 9, if you look there, he says, basically, you guys aren't living out as examples to my people what it looks like to worship me, to honor me, and to live in the fear of me, not uh, afraid of lightning bolts fear, but in reverence and honoring me in a way in which it says, your life is not about, you're not the center of your life. Someone else is, something else is. And he said, and the answer is me. If you think about First Timothy, I say this um, a couple weeks ago, I got the privilege to go to DTS to talk to future pastors. And uh, every time I'm with them, I will at least reference First Timothy 4.16, where Paul tells Timothy, a young pastor, pay attention to yourself and to your teaching. And I tell the guys in the class, the order is important. 
And I would tell you, if any of us, again, um, a, a, a fun thing for me is that every one of us in here, the New Testament calls every one of us a priest. Yet there is something of the aspect of leading amongst the people that those of us who are elders or, you know, ministry staff, pastors around here, there is a stricter judgment we will face, James would say. So it would be important to pay attention to myself and to my teaching. And what I would tell you is if we're, we're, we need grace, I'm going to fall short a lot, okay? <laughs> it's more the lean of your life and more the um, openness and teachability and the continuing in, where do I, Lord, where, where is an area where I am holding back? I'm not revering you. I'm reducing you. I'm keeping you manageable rather than honoring you in this area, in this attitude in my life. And so he's saying, take it to heart. Jesus uh, calls this out in Matthew 15. Um, I think there's a slide here. He says, you hypocrites talking to religious leaders. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain or emptiness do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. What I want us to see in this is that God is after you and me, what Jesus said, I've come that you have, might have life and life to the full or life more abundantly. That's what God is telling them. I'm not here to squelch your life with rules I'm here to provide stability and order so that you might worship me, so that you might love one another, and so that the watching world would go, I want that God. Because of the peace with which they live, the contentment with which they live, the buoyancy with which they handle trials, the way in which they are selfless and they look out for others more than their own interests. What gives? Who is your God? He says, that's what I'm after. And you priests need to take it to heart that you're leading my people astray. I got to keep moving. 10 to 16, he tells the priest, take it to heart. Now it's going to really get out to all the people. And he's basically saying, it says it twice in there, take heed, pay attention, be alert, wake up, pay attention. And it says in the last verse, so take heed to your spirit that you not deal treacherously. Three times in the passage, in these few verses, he mentions, your, yours might say, breaking faith. Yours might say, you're faithless. Or mine says, deal treacherously. Three times. In one fourteen, if you look over, he was getting on them last week for saying, you guys are swindlers or cheats when you come to worship. You tell me you're offering your best, but you leave that in the stall, and you bring one that's lame or sick. You don't bring your best. They're swindlers. They're cheats. Today, he goes... You're not just cheating in terms of what you offer. Now you're being traitors. You're being traitors to the God who gave you all that you have. And it shows up in these ways. You're breaking faith in your covenant relationship with one another. And then that shows up in how you are going after wives who worship other gods. And then how you are discarding the wife of your youth, some commentators would say, in order to go after those other women who have foreign gods. And some would just say, well, no, I'm, I'm just discarding you because I've kind of, you know, I just have this aversion to how you do this or don't do this, or our preferences just, you know, they don't match up. And, and so in these verses, 10, I want you to notice two things because we can get lost in the details. What God is after in the first part, he says, I've set you apart as my people and I'm your covenant Lord because I want you to be, have a, a, a life that is full and of wholeness and flourishing, life and peace. And he's saying, and that covenant of life and peace looks really ugly and is emptied of its possibility and beauty when you're, tre when you're treacherous, when you break covenant faithfulness. He says, first of all, it shows up in your faithlessness with one another. How you treat one another. Um, we don't think about it often, but uh, Leviticus, you know, the idea that love God and then love your neighbors yourself, that comes from Leviticus 19. And then it spokes out into all these areas. And this is what it looks like to, to love your neighbor. This is what it looks like to love 
you know, uh, where, where you live and how do you relate to your government. And there's all these ways of relating that are unique and different. The thing I want you to see in this section, if it was life and peace and honoring God above, down here it's two things. He says, what I'm really after is unity, which I've already provided for you, and a uniqueness, a distinctiveness. He says it multiple times. Don't we have one Father? And he's speaking of God. Don't we have one Creator? And he says one over and over again. He says, but that you're fracturing that oneness. And particularly where it gets most ugly is when you fracture marriage. Because now that betrays the picture that I wanted to give through your marriage to a world that is in need of me. And so he says, take heed to yourself that you not deal treacherously. And particularly what he's after is unity and uniqueness so that he is on display uh, through them. And, and they were being partially obedient. They were being partially obedient in how they treated one another. Uh, you can translate for us all the one another's in the New Testament. We did a series a year or two ago on them. But just think of a couple. Be kind, tenderhearted to one another, forgiving one another as Christ has also forgiven you. The standard is not if you feel forgiving, it's that he forgave you. Extend that to one another. Um, you, know, you have put up with one another or bear with one another. Accept one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. On and on and on. Is he doing that because he just wants you to have more and more rules to think about? No, he's saying, I want you to experience the life and the fullness of flourishing in relationships as my church, in relationship with me, so that your love for me, your honoring of me would show up in how you honor one another in your relationships. And then he gets pretty close to home. He says, now this is going to show up where you're profaning or breaking my covenant is where you're, you're basically unequally yoked. You're going after marrying uh, someone who, uh, it, it's. N- let me stop and say this. This is not, in the past, this would have been used as a proof text to say, see, interracial marriage, this is not what that says at all. That's a butchering and a blasphemous way to look at this passage. What it has to do with is worship. If He's, he's saying, don't be yoked with someone that doesn't worship me. Why? Because I want you to be united in me. I want to be central and heaviest in your relationship. So they were going outside of that, which waters down or damages. And what we'll do, it was, you know, if you think of Dallas and then LBJ and then George Bush, God will just move farther. Yahweh for them would move farther and farther to the outer loop of their lives. He says, that's not what I want. I want unity around me. And I want out of that your relationships to be so worked on and that unity being preserved diligently like we're called to in Ephesians, that there'd be a beautiful uniqueness and distinctiveness about you. And he says, then in um, divorcing your wives, again, I know that this could be a painful subject. What What I want you to see is God's design and intention. He's going back to the original design. He's like, um, leave father and mother and cleave to his wife and there'll be one flesh. He says, that's what I'm after because that unity and how you go about that marriage is so unique, it gives a picture that the world doesn't, doesn't see. And they, they were being partially obedient in all of these areas. And what that does is it minimizes, makes common God. He doesn't really have say or sway in their lives. And therefore, it waters down or it distorts the picture that he really wants of fullness and flourishing and thriving. And he wants the picture of himself through your marriage. For us, Ephesians 5, this isn't about divorce anymore. This is about what is our marriage, what is it designed for? God says, I want husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and I want wives to be respectful and submitted to their husbands, not pushed under, But as they do that, there's a beautiful weaving together of love and respect. And he says, this is a mystery. But what I'm talking about is I want your marriage to reflect Christ and the church. And that is what he's really saying in both. I want unity and uniqueness that the people of this world who pick and choose what they want to do, 
and think that that all of life is about, well, no contract, no commitment, get what you want whenever you want. We'll even give you money back, all that stuff. That's how we operate in our culture. He says, no, no, no. I want you to be devoted to one another so that that unity, that uniqueness, especially in our culture, would beautify me and cause your lives to be flourishing. Well, that's the call to priest. In the New Testament, we're all called to be priests, the priesthood of believers. And so we're to represent God to one another. We are to um, be in such relationship where uh, I've got people I can say, hey, when I get a little out of bounds, when my attitude gets a little sour or sideways, you call me on it so that I'm not partially obedient, so that I'm not justifying gossip, so that I'm not nursing bitterness and thinking I'm justified in it. I need somebody, several somebodies who love me enough to say, hey, man, that's not just a yellow flag, that's a red flag, and to call it out. And we're to be that kind of, of priest to one another. But the good news, and I close with this, he says, take it to heart and take heed. And say, so what, now what? Now, if, if, if the marriage piece is painful for you, if, if the way others have treated you or that you realize you've treated others is painful for you, none of us is going to do this perfectly. The good news in, in the upper passage, part of the passage, he's inviting the priest to return to him. And in the lower part, he's inviting uh, everyone to return to, not partial obedience, fully obey me because you trust me, and life will move toward that which is flourishing and beautiful. But we're all going to blow it. And the good news in Hebrews 4 is that we have a high priest who's never blown it. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, Grant can put it up there. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows where you are. He knows the suffering you're going through, the pain you're feeling. But one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the invitation. We can come to him to find grace. If you are like, whoa, this really stings, Lord, or oh, you really have hit me, or Lord, I, I almost am in such pain in my own situation, either of my own making or, or the abuse that I have received or the, um, the neglect that I have, I have been made to go through. His grace is available. He, he is, his heart is ignited toward you. And the good news is we have a high priest who's sympathetic, but also he's a high priest who sat down. You realize that the priest never sat down? Because you don't sit down unless your work is finished. And in Hebrews 10, it says that he gave the, the sacrifice that was once for all, and he could sit down. But then also there's good news in Acts 7. When someone was reverencing him and honoring his name in the midst of being attacked, Stephen, they came after him with one impulse. They were going to just destroy him, and they were, they were stoning him. But he looks up to heaven. Instead of Jesus being seated, which is where he is, He's seated at the right hand, having finished his priestly work and his sacrifice. It says that Stephen looked up and he saw Jesus standing. I think that's a picture of him saying, I, I accept and I honor and I'm delighted that you would honor me even if it meant your life. And that's the kind of Savior and returning King that we have. Would you stand? I'm going to invite the worship team. They're going to lead us in doxology. It's very brief. And then we'll close. The simple question is, <laughs> that was the first question. Uh, the, the simple question is, uh, am I, are you um, revering? reducing him in your mind and your attitude is there in any way do you kind of like we do in the rest of our lives do you kind of curate for yourself like well here's the pick and choose here's the things I'll obey here's where you can have say and sway in my life Lord here's where you can't 
If that's where you are, he's inviting you out of that because that leads to destruction. And if you are hurting, this area will get so personal. He's the God of all grace. He's the God of all comfort. He's not done with you yet, and you're not irretrievable. And we get to sing praise to him because of his blessings. He wants those blessings to flow in our lives. That doesn't mean everything will work out. He ties a bow on everything. It does mean we can know his presence in every area and every aspect of life. Thank you.